You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right. Uh, as you're having a seat, if you haven't already opened up your Bible, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, uh, go ahead and do so. And while you're doing so, did anyone else notice that Rodney and I dressed exactly alike this morning? Did anyone else notice that? Yeah. I was confused as to why he called me earlier this morning and asked me what I was wearing, but we've got some BFF pictures later on, so um, Ephesians chapter 4. Um, as we get started, I, I want to I start just by saying this. Um, your words are powerful things in the lives of others. And so in the New Testament, we have all these times in the epistles where it's like they stop for a second and they say, Think of your words. And so we're going to try to ask this question. What do our words play in the life of others as sanctification is going on in their lives? And that's what we're going to see that happens as we learn what speaking the truth in love means for a body of people trying to be like Christ. And so let's look at verse 1. And the first question we're going to ask, matter of fact, if you just want to take notes and then just put them away, we're going to ask these questions First off, what makes a Christian? And the answer is new life, nothing less than new life. The second question is, what does a Christian need? And the answer is, they need to grow out of spiritual immaturity. And then the third thing is, how does a Christian grow? And Paul's going to say, in community, a person grows. And so the first question, what, does, what makes a Christian? And so if you're taking notes, what makes a Christian? And the answer is nothing less than becoming a completely new person. Look at verse 1. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, and that's the church, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. For there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then jump down to verse 15. It says, verse 15, it says, so that, it says, rather speak the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, which is Christ. And so the first thing we want to ask, if it's true that nothing less than new life can make you a Christian, that it's not something that you become a Christian because you start to become nice, or you start to become polite, or you start to just adhere to a set of beliefs, you have to become a new creation altogether. And it starts off and it says, you have to work on the unity within the body, and then it ends and it says, you are growing into the head of Christ. We just want to ask this physical question, how does a body do without a head? I mean, if you ask that question, how does a body do with no head? And the answer is not very well. Like, you can lose your hand and do okay. One of my good friends, uh, he was much, much older. He was a carpenter, and all good carpenters eventually cut something off, and he cut his hand off. He had a little bit of his thumb, a little bit of his hand, and he was still a phenomenal carpenter. He was still alive. You can function without a hand. You can function without a foot. You can function without two arms. There's a guy, his name's John Foppy. When I was in third grade, he came to my grade school. He was born without arms. He walks into the gymnasium up on stage. He sits down. He picks up a Coca-Cola can with his foot. He takes his other foot and he cracks it open with his toes and he takes a drink with his feet. 
And he says, I know, I know, you're not supposed to have drinks in the gym. And we are freaking out. You can survive with all sort of appendages not there, but you can't survive without a head. And so it's the same thing true in physical life, that you can't, you can't survive without a head. It's also true in spiritual life, and Paul would agree with you. Look at verse 4. He says, there is one body, and then we go all the way to verse 15. This is what's kind of blocking this passage in, and he says this, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. And so he says there is a connection that happens at the point of salvation that ties you into new life. That you were dead before, that you didn't need new customs, you didn't even need just a, an example to live by, you didn't need polite words to save you, you needed life to save you. And that is justification. And that's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to get all your stuff together and learn the right praise songs and learn the right words and say the right phrases that you come in. So when people say, how are you doing? You're like, well, I'm just blessed. That doesn't save you. It's life. And so we have to grow it in the head and so we receive a head. And let's just ask this question. How are heads connected to bodies? I mean, are they connected lightly? I mean, do you just tape the head on or staple it on unless you're Frankenstein? I mean, do you just do that? No, it's connected by a series of bones and tendons and ligaments and sinews. I don't even know what sinews are, but they're all connected. And then they're all held together with the same life force that's blood. Now, I want you to see this. And so in verse 5, it says this. It goes through all these different things. It's look, verse 4 and 5, it says, There is one body and one spirit as you were called, with one hope, belongs to your call. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God in all, one Father in all, who is over all, in all, that we grow up into him in every way. What word do you see repeated over and over and over? One. All right, some of you guys are still trying to figure out your reading. All right, you would circle one. And so it says there is one avenue of life. And to become a Christian, you have to find this one avenue of life. And it's him who is Christ. And then look even closer. On one side, you say this. So first off, becoming a Christian is not something just to make you nice. It's not even just a set of beliefs that you have to hear to. Look at verse 4 and 5. It says one hope, one faith, and one baptism. But those aren't alone. You can agree with all the doctrinal statements and say they make sense. There are people who are lost who look at it and they say Jesus is Lord. And that's why the scriptures say not everyone who says Jesus is Lord will be saved because it's not just enough to believe right. Look at what else there. So it's not just being nice. It's not a set of beliefs. You have to be new. Now look at this. After it says one body, it says one spirit. You would circle that. One spirit, the Holy Spirit. Then it goes on and it says one hope, but then it says one Lord. That's Jesus. And then it goes on, it says one faith, one baptism, all doctrinal statements. And it says one God and Father and all, and that's the Father. Do you realize that it takes the power of the Trinitarian God coming into your life in a moment to connect you with Jesus, who is the head, to bring you life of all the power of justification? It is a moment where Jesus steps out and says, I am here for you. And I am bringing you new life. And there is nothing in you that would merit it. There is nothing in you that would earn it. I am giving it to you. And it saves you. And it makes you new. 
That's a powerful thing. That is not, I read a a list that in some class and I said, I agree to those things. That is coming to the mercy of the Lord and saying, there is no other way unless you step out of heaven and you step into me that I can be made new, that I can be with you. It takes the power of the Trinitarian God coursing through your veins. And so when Paul starts and he wants to ask this, he starts off with what makes a Christian. It's not just being nice. Now, there are a lot of words in this that says you have a problem being nice, and we're going to see that. That he says you've got to put these things on. It's not just being nice. It's not just a set of beliefs. He has the one faith, one baptism, all these set of beliefs, these doctrinal statements. It's not just that. It is the Trinitarian God coming into your life. And so a Christian is a new creation with the life of the Trinitarian God in their veins. And we want to ask, what does this produce? And we would say, with all the power, it is only enough to create a spiritual baby. And so look at this. Look at verse 11. And we'll go verse 11 through 14. And so we're going to say, what does a Christian need? Once you're a Christian and you're in a body of Christ, what do you need? And the answer is you need to grow out of spiritual immaturity. And so here we go. It says, and he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so just to pause there, and this is just kind of extra, but just to pause there. Look, look back, it lists all these different offices that God gives, and he gives it to the church. And what does it say he gives them to the church for? What does that say in verse 12? Someone tell me. To equip. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so that means that God looks at the body and he arranges it in different ways. And he says, we're going to have to have all these different tangents, all these different things working in one course for ministry. And that means your preacher cannot do all the ministry. That means your staff cannot do all the ministry. That means your elders cannot do all the ministry. So deacons come alongside and people serve and bless you if you get up early in the morning and set stuff up. Did you know the chair you're sitting in does not magically appear underneath your seat? Do you know that? Do you know that all this stuff up in the children, that we put all these barriers so your kids don't fall down the stairs and die? Do you know that doesn't just magically appear? People set that up, and I just said that, and now you're fearful. You're like, I gotta go get my kid. It's not gonna happen. We built gates. That there is a part of coming and serving. Did you know that your pastor does not live in every one of your neighborhoods? And so he can't reach everyone in your neighborhood for Jesus. Did you know that maybe, just maybe, Jesus in his great wisdom and orchestration said, I'm going to gather a group of people together and I'm going to have them be born in this time like Acts 17 says. And they're going to live in this place and they're going to know these type of customs and they're going to go to this grade school and they're going to take the first grade and the second grade and sometimes take the second grade again and they're going to do all of that. And they're going to be around people that they might be light. And that God says, we're going to congregate and we're going to worship and we're going to try to grow out of spiritual immaturity so that we can do ministry. And so it starts off and it says this, in verse, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain the unity of the faith 
and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so we're to the second question, what does a Christian need? And a Christian needs to grow out of spiritual immaturity. And so just in a very real way, why do we congregate and worship and look at the scriptures and grow and go to home group? Why do we have these things in our lives? And it's to grow us so we don't stay spiritual babies. Isn't it incredible? I mean, I tried to get everyone excited, and there were a few people excited, and everybody was like, oh, this is great, I don't know. But I tried to get everyone excited about the power of justification, that the Trinitarian God has to step into your life to connect you to Christ so you can have life, because if you don't have a head, you don't have life. And so I try to get you excited, but all the power of justification separating you from life to death, or let's flip that around, death to life, all that power, it doesn't produce a mature man in the faith. It produces a spiritual baby. And isn't that, isn't that true in physical life? I mean, we've got, we've got a five-month-old, and five months ago, when he was born, he did not come out a mature man. He did not come out with a beard and a cup of coffee reading the classics. He came out as a baby, and we expected him to come out as a baby. And so when people come to Christ, look at me, we should expect them to be like babies. We shouldn't get offended when they act like babies. They have to grow. And if we get offended that they act like babies, it's because we are babies. And so we grow into this, and so we come, it's spiritually immature, and so we want to ask, what does it mean to be a spiritual baby? And the first thing, if you're taking notes, spiritual babies are not discerning. Look at verse 14, it says, so that we may be no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You see, there's a lot of doctrine out there. People believe different things, and they will come and they will sell a doctrine, a belief about God, a theology, a belief about how we respond to that, a doctrine, and they will try to sell it to us. And when you are first born and you are Christian, if you are spiritually mature, it's hard for you to discern between doctrine, what's right, what's not right. And so we have to grow in maturity. And this is true with babies. If you come over to our house for dinner, and right before dinner, you got down and you got on eye level with Quinn. And you said, Quinn, what do you want for dinner? She would probably, nine out of ten times, she would say, soft cookies. She would say, I want soft cookies for dinner. And she would say it because they taste delicious. If you eat nothing but soft cookies, you are going to die. And so soft cookies is not the same as real food. And if you never eat vegetables, look at me, you are going to die. And so you have to eat the right kinds of food. And you have to look at the right kinds of doctrine. It's the same thing in the spiritual life. That there are things that if you try to live on, you will die. And so spiritual babies are not discerning. But they're not, it's not even just between good food and bad food. There are things that babies will eat that are not food at all. Liv, our, our, uh, our second child, 
when she was born, uh, when we first got here, we were still in the apartment, and there was like this, there was like this plague that came through our apartment, and there were crickets everywhere. And it's like every cricket in the entire apartment complex decided to take a journey to our apartment and to die all at once in a genocide across our floor. And so Liv saw it as a gift from God, like manna from heaven, and she would eat the crickets. And we would find her, and she's got like a cricket leg sticking out her mouth. And she's not discerning. It's not food. And right now you're like, well, some places in the world, they eat crickets. Not in America. You can't eat American crickets. And so she has, and we're, you know, we'd have to like clean her teeth out and there'd be cricket legs in there. And we, she would look at it and she would say, this is food. And we'd say, it's not food. She wasn't discerning. And so this, this is the question. Are you growing in spiritual discernment? When you look at the scriptures. And if the only thing you do is you come, and you might be real ready, but you come and you hear preaching and you never open the scriptures and you never read for yourself, you are not growing in spiritual discernment. And this text would say you are a spiritual baby. But it's scarier than just eating crickets. You see, you might have trouble be distinguishing between good and bad doctrine or there might be really really false doctrine that's not even within the christian orthodoxy but you also if you have small children you have to lock up cabinets because these small children won't just eat crickets they'll open up cabinets and they'll grab cleaning supplies which is poison and they'll also eat poison and so we start off spiritual babies are not discerning are you growing in discernment and it says in verse 11 it gave apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. But it's going to go on. It says it gives so much more than that. And we'll get there in just a second. The second thing, look at verse 1. The second thing, spiritual babies are self-centered. In verse 1 it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, that's the church, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now look at these words and circle them. It says, with all humility... And so the assumption is you don't start off with humility. And so you need humility with all gentleness. And so the assumption is you don't start off being gentle. And it says with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit within the bond of peace. And so is it safe to assume that when Paul is looking at the church and he says, if we don't fix this problem of spiritual immaturity, we are going to run all over each other and destroy one another. And so we have to add things that you have to grow or you'll just hurt each other. And so, I mean, look at those words. It would be this. Like if you were just in your quiet time and you were reading this and all of a sudden you said, man, am I working really hard to build unity within my home group or build unity within the church or build unity within my community? You might see these words, and humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing one another in love. And you might ask this, this would bring maturity. God, which of these words pierces my heart because I know I'm not being patient or gentle or humble? And so he uses these powerful words because he says spiritual babies are self-centered and let me ask you this. Do we see that in real physical babies? 
are real physical babies self-centered? Right now, all the moms are like, yes. And all the dads are like, I don't know. I leave every day. And so all the moms are like, yes. Cruz, he's our five-month-old. He, he's, man, he's an easy baby. We, we are in danger of becoming a self-righteous parents because we've had really easy children. And he's a happy kid. And if you don't believe me, you need to serve with the birth through five-year-olds. And that was a plug for Travis. And you get to hold my baby. And he's the happiest baby. And you'll probably look at all other babies and be like, why can't other babies be like my baby? And there's my self-righteous coming out. He's such a happy kid. I mean, he really is. But something happens. See, he'll be happy and he'll be smiley and he'll be having fun. And then all of a sudden, all at once, he realizes that he is starving to death. And in that moment, this is the theological word. He freaks out. He literally freaks out and he'll scream his head off. And it's not a gradual thing with him. Some babies get uncomfortable and kind of start to squirm around. He's happy, go lucky, we're playing with him. And then he is screaming in your face because he's starving to death. He's never once, he's never once, as he was getting hungry, and he got really hungry, looked at Kinsey and said, Mother dearest, I realize that for whatever reason, you and dad decided you would have three children in the span of four years, and you are chasing a three-year-old or two-year-old around the house, and that you're busy. I just want you to know I'm hungry, and at the first convenient time, could you please feed me? He doesn't think of others. He thinks of his needs, and he freaks out. Do you know that you can measure your spiritual maturity on how often your feelings get hurt. Have you ever thought about this? Like you only think about something when it hurts, like on your body. Like when you were walking in this morning, did anyone come in with the idea of, man, my feet feel great. They just feel really great. They see, you would only think that if previously your feet were hurting, but when they hurt, you think about your hurt feet all the time. Like when you've been on your feet all day and they're aching, that's all you can think about. And so let me ask you this. How many times in the day does your ego get hurt? How many times in the day do your feelings get hurt and you want to know why did they look at me that way? Or why did they say that to me that way? Or why didn't they look at me? Or why didn't they talk to me? What's wrong with them? That's a sign of spiritual immaturity it, it, it says that you're you're unsteady it says that you're self-centered and that you're thinking about what it is and so spiritual babies are the same way that we have to grow we have to figure out that this is not about me this is not about just me and my wants and my desires this is about the glory of god being spread out in this place and beyond and god has called me to be a part of his wonderful kingdom and now i'm in this body and i can't stay self-centered and so god comes along and he says with all the power of justification you have to grow and spiritual babies are not discerning so i have to grow in discernment spiritual babies are self-centered so i have to grow and think about others and what's going on and spiritual babies number 3 are unsteady look at verse 14 again it says so that you may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves have you guys ever seen a kid for the first time learning to walk you know, and they kind of stand there and they're holding on to something. 
and they don't want to let go, and then they let go, and they're kind of wa- waving back and forth, and they grab it, and you're like, man, what is wrong with that kid? Does he have an equilibrium problem? And you're like, no, he's just unsteady. He's just a child. And so they start to take a few steps, and you have to cover up every sharp corner in your house because at any given time, in any direction, they could fall and die. And so you have to cover everything. And they're walking, and they're unsteady, and they trip this way, and they fall that way. And in the same way, we should expect spiritual babies, new Christians, people who are walking in immaturity, we should expect them to be unsteady, and that means they're going to trip on us. That they're going to fall in every different direction. They're unsteady. And so one aspect of spiritual unsteadiness. If you come to church and you are convicted by something that is spoken, you see something in scripture and it cuts you to your heart and you are convicted and you have this thought. It's almost like something is inside of you saying, You need to change this. This will destroy you. And you walk out the doors and you don't make any changes. This would say you're unsteady. If you're reading the scriptures and something steps out and it convicts you. And you go and you don't change anything. This would say you're unsteady. And the way that James would say it is like if you look in the mirror and you see your face, but then you walk away and you forget what you look like, you're unsteady. And see, the scriptures, they, they reflect who we really are by showing us who God really is. And when we see that reflection, we see that something wrong, it should move us to pray, God, you have to save me from myself. There is something in me that will destroy me, and I need your help. And then I follow with repentance, and if I don't follow with repentance... This says I'm a spiritual baby. And so as we see this, there's there's a part where, where, where Jesus says this to the disciples. And you might just thumb over to Luke chapter 10, but you can just stay there. But Luke chapter 10 in verse 17 what happens is he sends out the 72, the, the, the big group of disciples. There's like 144. He sent out 72 of the disciples. And they went two by two to all the surrounding cities. And he says, I want you to go and I want you to preach that the gospel is here. The good news is here. I want you to tell them the kingdom of God is coming. And he says, I want you to heal every disease you come across. I want you to cast out every demon that you see. I want you to go in great power. And so he goes out, and so we see in verse 17, it says, The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And so they come back, and they said, everything is working out great. All the circumstances, I felt like my life was in good alignment when I cast out the demon and he left. Everything is working great. Look what Jesus says. In verse 20, he says, nevertheless, Do not rejoice in this. Isn't that weird? Don't rejoice just in this great victory. Don't rejoice in this circumstance. He says, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so what this tells us, Jesus said, don't rejoice that things are going good for you now. Because there are times they won't go good for you, and I'm trying to produce steadiness in you. I'm trying to produce maturity in you. And so there will be days that it doesn't work the way you think it should work. He says, don't rejoice for that, but rejoice that all the power of justification has saved you. And you will be in heaven one day because you are in the kingdom of God. 
And so it comes back to this justification idea. And then we see this growing idea that we shouldn't just stay there. And so we want to ask this question now. What should I do since it seems to be saying, Paul seems to say, we all have spiritual babiness around you? Like that's saying to me, Casey, you have spiritual babiness in you. What should we do since we're all growing up into spiritual maturity? And Paul includes himself. And the first thing is don't be surprised when people act like spiritual babies. In a very real way, this is telling us, and a very, very real way for us, that all churches are filled with poopy diapers. I mean, have you ever noticed how many little babies we have? So we physically have poopy diapers. I mean, I was just watching. Do you know how many pregnant women there are in this place? Like, way to go, guys. Way to go. But it's not just physical. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised when spiritual immaturity comes out all around us. But there's also a warning that says this. Don't you dare allow spiritual immaturity in yourself. Do you see that? At the time of justification, right here in the center of you, God creates a new creation. And you are now separated from death to life. But this new creation isn't fully out here because I've got layers of sin and layers of idolatry and layers of habits and layers of thinking that God is trying to emerge through. And so he's going to bring forces from the outside to work in and he's going to use the Holy Spirit from the inside to work out so that this new creation comes out. And so he's trying to produce spiritual maturity in me. And it finally brings us to our last question. How does a Christian grow? Now look at verse 13. So how does a Christian grow? It says, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and the statures of the fullness of Christ, so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, whom the whole body is joined and held together. And so this is building and building and building. And so it says we are saved by justification. It says we are born into spiritual immaturity. And we need to grow out of spiritual immaturity. And it comes to this place where it says it's going to happen in community. It will never happen in isolation. You cannot grow in maturity in isolation. There is not a New Testament letter written to the Christians over there in Galatia who aren't connected to any church. There is not any letters. There is not the idea of this that you can be in love with the Lord and just sit under a tree and grow in spiritual maturity. It says you need a community around you. Paul tells us there's no spiritual maturity by you just working on yourself. It's the product of you getting into work out in the context of Christian community. And so look at this. It's going to tell spiritual maturity comes from spiritual unity. Look at verse 13. It says, until we all. Now the interesting thing, if you look at this, it says until we all, that's plural. And so it says there's many, many spiritual babies and we're all scattered on. And we start off individualized. And so it says until we all, and then it says attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And then look at this, to mature manhood. 
Now, in, in the original language, it reads really weird. It says, until we all, many spiritual babies, grow into one man. And so the idea of unity, that we build unity within our church, unity within our home group, unity within our community, that there be unity within your household, is that we are becoming one. I mean, think about marriage. When you've been married a long time, can your spouse not guess what you're going to say before you say it? Doesn't that annoy you sometimes? It's family. Okay, get used to it. Can your spouse not guess how you would act in a certain situation? It's because you're becoming one. And so it literally reads that we start off individualized and we have to grow into a functional, unified body. And that we'd have harmony among one another. Now look at me. You can know if God is growing spiritual maturity in you. If when you look at your community, if you dive in and you're there to build unity. But if you're there and you're upset with your home group because they're not doing what you want to do. And you're like, man, I just don't know if it's worth my time. And you're thinking very individualistically. It doesn't mean you have to agree with everything. But the same thing I tell my children, it's not that you disagree, it's how you disagree. And so when Quinn comes and we tell her she can't have soft cookies for dinner, she is free to ask for soft cookies. But when we tell her no, and she tears up, and she falls to the floor, and she melts in a puddle screaming... That's not maturity. And so this, it, it, it weighs upon us. The other thing it says, number two, spiritual maturity comes from seeking Jesus and serving others. Look at verse 15. It says, into him who is the head, into Christ. And so this idea that we look to Jesus, we love Jesus, we seek Jesus. But then it goes on in verse 16, and it says, when each part is working properly, there's a serving aspect. The parts of my body serve the other parts of my body so it works together. And so we see the seeking and we see the serving and we see this throughout the New Testament. Matter of fact, in Matthew 22, when Jesus asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And he says the second is just like it, that you would love your neighbor. And so it's that you would seek after the Lord and that you would serve one another. And so there is a part that you cannot grow in spiritual maturity if you're not connected in the body of Christ and you are not trying to love Jesus and serve others it's a strong conclusion so you would just ask yourself man am i serving others in my church and if the answer is no the the text would weigh upon me and say there's a part of me that is still very spiritually immature and this is we all feel this i mean if you're listen if you're on setup or not even on setup if you're on saturday night uh, pre-setup where you have to come and clean up after all the parties and there's only a few of you you probably don't get excited at 12 30 at night every saturday and say man i can't wait to get up there and serve there's probably a part of you is like oh that is weighing into my schedule and i could be sleeping and i could be doing all that but spiritual maturity maturity is saying man, i don't necessarily want to but i know that i need to and it's getting up and doing that and so we see this growing. Now look at the third thing. And this is where the text comes to a crescendo. And it says this. Spiritual maturity comes from a community speaking the truth in love. This, 
I, I never saw this in this text until Rodney asked me to, to look at this text and to preach it and underline speaking the truth in love, that it's all building to, to this idea that you need community, and that community is only going to serve you well when they love you enough to tell you the truth about who you really are. You see, because we don't know who we really are. Like, have you ever seen yourself in a, in a, like on a video and heard yourself and you thought, man, I don't look like that or I don't sound like that. And you kind of look at your friends and you say, am I really that bald? And they kind of look at you kind of weird and like, they don't know what to say in that moment. You see, here's the deal. When I see myself in a picture or in video, I see how people really see me. When I look in the mirror, I position myself in such a way so I don't really see me. I don't really see my baldness because I'm looking in the mirror like this. What's going on? And so when I see myself for real or I hear my whiny voice for real and I say, that's not me, my friends just kind of look at me and they don't know what to say. And they're like, well, that's exactly how you sound all the time. And so there's this part where you don't really know you. You have to have people around you to know you. Like when you're first married, aren't some of your biggest fights because all of a sudden life starts rubbing against one another and your spouse looks at you and says, why do you act this way? And you say, I don't act that way. And she looks at you really confused. You act that way every day of your life. I mean, it takes people looking at you for you to know you. And so it's incredible that the God of the universe saves us through an act of what only he can do to give you new life through the power of justification that he connects you with Jesus. But then he puts you in a place with a bunch of other spiritual babies that you might mature somehow. And he says it's only going to happen when you love one another enough that you will speak the truth in love. And this breaks down in two different ways because you need to know that speaking the truth in love is not simply saying with all due respect and then saying whatever you want to say. That is not speaking the truth in love. You cannot, speaking the truth in love is not saying no offense intended and then saying whatever you say. Speaking the truth in love is not talking about someone's kid and saying, man, bless that kid's heart. They are just, that is not speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love is when you love someone so much that you don't want them to destroy themselves, that you see a pattern in their life and you go to them with fear and trembling because you know that it's probably going to hurt them. They're probably going to be upset at you, but you love them so much you're saying, I won't let you destroy yourself today. And so this breaks two different ways. You see, you need to know truth and love must go together to accomplish their objective. They have to go together or they will never accomplish their objective. You see, truth without love, if you're just truthful, it's deadly. If you're someone that loves to look at others and just tell them, you know this is what's wrong with you, your words don't help them because they know you don't love them. You harden their hearts so they can't hear the truth. Truth will never accomplish truth without love. But you know the opposite is true. Love will never accomplish love without truth. If you're looking at someone that you love and you see a huge flaw in their life, but you're scared to tell them because you're scared of how they're going to react and what they're going to say and that it might hurt their relationship, you know you're not loving them. 
You love yourself. And so look at this. This is how it breaks down. Selfishness and sin keeps us from telling the truth in love. And so if you're right now and you're a loving person, everyone has a little bit of a continuum in their life. And so on one side is the loving person who will do anything for you, who only says encouraging things. That's their nature. And on the other side is the truthful person who sees things really clear and they don't have many words at all. They just kind of say the words that really hurt. And so there's a continuum. You bend one way or the other. And so let's just start. If you're a truthful person, you more bend toward the truth, and you don't really use flowery language. You never wrote a poem for your wife before you were married. You're a truthful person. You just said, I like you, I love you, and that's enough. If you're bent toward being a truthful person, when you use truth without love, you only love yourself because you want to use the truth about that person to push them down to elevate yourself. And so if that's you, the text leads us to say, I am not speaking the truth in love. It leads us to repent and to say, God, I am so sorry. I am so selfish. And I use my words to hurt others to promote myself. But if you're a loving person, and man, you love people and you don't want to hurt their feelings and you won't speak the truth to them, You're just loving yourself because you don't want to hurt their feelings because you're basing your merit and your self-love on how much they love you. And you also need to repent and say, I am a self-seeking person and I'm not loving people well because I won't tell them the truth. And so what are we going to do, right? You see, I, I'm, I'm more naturally a, a loving person. It, it's hard for me to say hard words to people because I'm kind of like a Labrador. I just want them to love me and pet me. and Not physically, don't pet me. <laughs> I just want them to tell me I'm pretty and all those kind of things. How, how am I going to be safe in this? And, and what saves me is the gospel. Consider these truths in the gospel. First off, the gospel is the combination. It's the perfect balance of truth and love. See, the first thing is very truthful. See, Jesus had to die on the cross because of truth, because you are wicked. There was no other way to save you. Jesus had to die for you. So he comes and he speaks to you about your sin, and he speaks in truthful words that hurt you. But you see, it's also loving because he chose to die on the cross because he loves you. And so truth and love come together, and it can release you so that you can follow in step of the gospel within your community And you can see great spiritual growth as you speak the truth in love. Now, just for a second, I want you to close your Bibles. And I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to move to a time of worship. But I want you just to get really still and just think. The text moves us from our beautiful salvation that God stepped out of heaven and stepped into our hearts and we celebrate that. And then it drops us down deep where it says, you have some spiritual baby in you and you need to grow. And then it starts to give us the means that we are to grow into spiritual manhood. And it ends in this loud thing, you need community and you need to speak the truth in love. And that brings us to the place 
I think the text is pushing us for repentance. And so just being really still, it would ask you this question. First, are you, are you someone who's bent more toward being a loving person or more being a truthful person? And so identifying yourself, am I more of a loving person? I just want to encourage, or am I a truth person? It's easy for me to tell the truth. Just standing where I am and then looking within me, what is the way that sin is going to use me to hurt others? Because I'm a loving person, I won't tell them the truth. That would be a time of repentance, that you would be welling up in your heart, that there are people in your group that you have looked into their lives and you are scared for them, but you have not loved them well because you have not told them the truth. Spiritual maturity would lead us that we would leave here convicted and we would say, I will tell them the truth. That I would be courageous, that I wouldn't seek my approval and my satisfaction and their opinion of me, but I would love them enough to tell them the truth. Or if you're a truthful person, and you realize that you have noticed things about people, and you have said things to people or about people that are truthful, but it's to hurt them, to build up your own fame so you can feel okay. The first step of repentance, of becoming a loving person so you can speak the truth of love, would be to go to them and to ask for forgiveness. Community's hard. Community is imperfect. Your feelings will get hurt. Your toes will get walked on. You will be rejected. Because we all have spiritual babiness in us. Spiritual maturity says, I understand that. And I'm going to come here and I'm going to speak the truth in love for others. And I'm going to receive the truth in love from others so that God might grow us into one mature man on mission for his glory in our community. Lord, I pray that you would just deal with us just really sovereignly and you would help us. And Lord, you would make us a people that love each other enough that we would speak the truth in love, and Lord, we'd be quick to repent on whichever side that we are. And so for some of us, it's going to tell someone something that's truthful, that we're afraid for them. And Lord, I pray that that would be received well, that it'd be incredible, it'd be a watershed moment, that there'd be incredible growth in their life, and there'd be a present day saving that you gave the church, God's people, this tool to help grow, that we would know ourselves. But Lord, there's some of us that need to go and ask for forgiveness to someone else. Because we've been using the truth to push them down. And Lord, I pray that you prepare the way that that would be a season of repentance in between two people. And there would be restoration because you gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And Lord, you'd produce this to be a safe place. And that we would grow. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.